We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Welcome to Live Players, where political scientists and strategists Sam Oberia and I discuss the key individuals with the power to alter our current society. Every week, we provide analysis of the news and case studies of live players, as well as key institutions and technologies that make up the global power landscape. Let's dive in. Hi, Eric. Hey, how are you doing? Hope you're having a good day. Yes, yes, I am having a good day. Thanks for your patience. Excited to uh, chat about tech uh, stagnation. Why don't we start with an introduction? What is the tech stagnation for uh, or thesis for people who are unfamiliar that Peter Thiel and Tyler Cowen helped popularize in the, in the last decade? And, and are, are we still in it? It would seem like uh, things have changed over the past few years, uh, thanks to open AI, thanks to advancements in, in, in biotech and VR, et cetera. And maybe things are a bit different than they were before the pandemic. But what, what, uh, what is your perspective? The great stagnation has been a thesis that the rate of technological progress across many domains has in fact significantly slowed down from its peak in about 1870 to 1970. And I think one of the core parts of the argument is not that there is no uh, relatively rapid technological progress, but that it is constrained to the world of bits rather than the world of atoms. So instead of there being a revolution in chemistry, a revolution in uh, physics, a revolution in biology, a revolution in mathematics and computer science, et cetera, right? Technologies like the green revolution and fertilizers, nuclear power, honestly faster, you know, supersonic flight, space travel, and the very first computers emerged in the same time period right? This, this period from 1870 to 1970. So if today we have perhaps after the pandemic seen a return to progress in VR and artificial intelligence, that just shows that maybe five or 10 years ago, even bits were not advancing very quickly. We perhaps narrativized them as advancing very quickly. But I doubt any one of us really cares for the difference between a 2010 era iPhone in a 2014 era iPhone, looking back on it, right, with a few years of distance. Uh, the iPhone itself was, however, acknowledged in public uh, appearances by Teal and in Tyler's writing as a significant breakthrough in its own right. So the thesis was always about why are we only seeing progress in, let's say, computers broadly understood or information technology broadly understood? And maybe the stronger variant of it is that Moore's law, which was supposed to change everything, mostly just changed information tech and did not translate quite as easily uh, into biology, into chemistry, into physics, uh, things like new energy sources, new materials, and new medicine. We could also look at you know companies like SpaceX and Tesla and Andrew and lots of you know other companies that are building things real world and advancements that are happening in, in energy? Is it just that there's not enough of them? Or when would we know 
that we've uh, we've exited this great stagnation? Is it the, just the productivity statistics, or is it something uh, a bit more qualitative? I think that um, measuring progress or measuring technological progress is very tricky. It's a tricky undertaking. Um, and the argument is because of this mostly qualitative. It is an argument for, look, in the 1870s, you have cities uh, with literally horse manure in the streets, uh, no electric lighting. And 1970, well, you have astronauts walking on the moon. And, you know, maybe the mother of all demos hasn't quite yet been made. But the idea that we would have an AI revolution eventually, well, that happened. And nuclear weapons and nuclear energy were a reality. And all of these things across so many fields. I find it strange that if there is such rapid progress in all aspects of modern technology, that we, the everyday user and consumer, experience so little except for what can receive updates on our devices. So anything where you can download a software update, uh, you in fact will still see progress, right? I can install uh, ChatGPT uh, as an app on my phone right now. I couldn't do that five years ago. So now I can have a conversation with a computer, not necessarily my phone or my computer, but this would not have perplexed anyone in 1960. If I said, hey, you know, in the distant year of 2024, uh, we will have pocket computers that dial up wirelessly to talk to big computers far away, and I can have like a conversational text exchange with this big computer far away. Uh, I don't think anyone would be confused, actually. I think they might find the the idea of the personal computer without any sort of big data centers behind it more confusing. So in a way, if I tried to explain the technology of 1995, that would have been more of a surprise to them uh, than right now, where honestly, this thing, the smartphone, it's kind of evolving to just be a terminal. Like if we described it as a portable wireless terminal to someone from 1965, this is a future they would have understood. And if we told them, hey, we can talk to computers, uh, they would be maybe even surprised that it took to 2024 to get conversational computers. So really this felt sense of progress and the idea that science fiction is science realism, right? Or is realism about the near future? That was ubiquitous in 1960 and is not so today. So the very fact again that people expect less progress, I think shows that there in fact is less progress, like less of it touches their personal experience. Is it, do you think that it's here, but it's just not evenly distributed yet? I mean, in San Francisco, we do have self-driving cars, right? You know, Boom is making supersonic planes. We do have embryo selection and gene editing and all all this crazy stuff that is not yet mainstream, not even close, but in small pockets actually happening. Well, if the future is already here and it's just not evenly distributed, maybe this was always true, Right. Again, when you had the mother of all demos, you could see a point and click use of what we would today recognize as a computer desktop. Completely blew everyone's minds in the room. Uh, and again, it took until the 1990s to actually have that be common. And if we're talking about uh, supersonic uh, travel, I do think that there is uh, an important benefit there where bits have delivered on some of the promise in the world of atoms. Um, I think that, for example, they make uh, ample use of basically software tools. Maybe they've started using machine learning to model some of the aerodynamic phenomena as well. I don't remember. Um, but those planes are 
uh, in design better than the 1960s and 70s design for supersonic travel. But again, we're talking about relatively, let's say, fuel-efficient supersonic travel. Uh, the Concorde was in operation for decades between New York and London. So if we're saying that, oh, okay, we are very close now to being to, able to buy a supersonic plane ticket commercially, again, from the user's experience, this does not yet feel like progress. It might be technically impressive, but it is not accessible. And it actually is worse. It used to be accessible, right? Like you could buy a pricey supersonic ticket on the Concorde from New York to London. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. Over 100 startups launched today. Do you know who they are? If you're not seeing interesting startups, none of your downstream processes matter. How you source deals at the earliest stages could be your most consequential investment. Harmonic is the most complete startup database, finding new companies as soon as they incorporate and tracking them through IPO. You can create a search tailored to your investment thesis. In one search, filter over company data, including venture stage, industry, and geography, founders and operators backgrounds, and traction metrics like headcount changes, social media audience, and web traffic growth. Importantly, Harmonic instantly surfaces warm connections to help you connect with founders. The results are delivered on autopilot, wherever you most need them, over Slack, email, or via API, directly into your CRM, integrating seamlessly into your software stack. Learn why Craft, Bedrock, NEA, and hundreds more. Trust Harmonic's data by visiting harmonic.ai or use the link in the description. Make sure you mention our podcast, Turpentine VC, during your demo. You, you, you've tweeted and written some briefs about giving examples of how tech culture has stagnated or that it's acknowledged it's stagnated. What, why don't you give more examples or kind of flesh out that, that argument? I think that there is a way in which we have seen a relative slowdown um, of software, by which I mean that uh, OpenAI is a beautiful example of a company that you can actually still think of as what I would call a late internet company. What do I mean by late versus early internet companies? Well, I think that we have reached the point where never again in our future will 10 times more people use the internet uh, than they do right now. Like at least until the population grows massively, right? Maybe we're going to have to colonize a few extra planets. But if you checked out the online world from about the year 2000 to 2015, you were experiencing like practically doublings of people who have access to the internet, who use it, right? And then later on, how many devices they own that are connected to the internet, right? Like people might have a laptop, a phone, they might have two phones. The internet of things was like an attempt to extend this idea that, okay, maybe the number of people stagnate, but the number of devices they have in their home that are online enabled or whatever is going to continue increasing, right? So you basically have these nodes in a network. Metcalfe's law is that the more nodes that there are in this network, it becomes almost exponentially more valuable. We've reached kind of saturation right now. Maybe twice as many people will use the internet in the future, but not four times as many. We've run out of them. People in India use it. People in Nigeria are starting to use it. China has developed a full independent commercial stack. Many of the easy things that could be done with computers and that could be delivered to a user through the input devices that I provocatively called portable terminals, right? I think they've already been done. 
And this still means that there will be very valuable companies. But I think that it's telling that a lot of the companies people are most excited about are basically like business to business SaaS and stuff like that, right? It feels very much like infrastructure for the consumer facing uh, products that consumers already use rather than this sort of like novel direct experience that the uh, user might have, which really blew our minds over and over again. Like it's hard to remember, but I think that the introduction of like good navigation and maps like Google Maps, I think that changed people's lives actually probably to a comparable degree to ChatGPT, let's say. Like right now, I uh, practically don't know many of the cities I visit because I rely on my map. And it's the same for Apple users and their Apple equivalents. And it's the same for everyone's driving experience. So really, like the introduction of maps was like a pretty big change. Having a conversational computer, having a conversational phone, like the chatbot, right? That's like comparable, but it's rare. It's been years since the last thing like ChatGPT's virality happened. Eric, like, what would you name as the last thing that had happened before ChatGPT that was like similarly viral and big? I can't really remember. Clubhouse was pretty big at one point. That's true. Yeah, but that was, you know, during COVID and you can't compare it to ChatGPT. I didn't have a sense for the world is different because of this. I would argue that at least Facebook was such a thing. But again, that's like a decade earlier, right? And again, I think Clubhouse was definitely a contender during uh, the COVID lockdowns. Right. Yeah, Facebook, Twitter, I guess Snap, I guess social networks, TikTok uh, obviously became, became massive. TikTok is huge though, but it's following this pattern of social media as is people point out, oh, actually it's very similar. What was the other service, the US company uh, that was before TikTok? Uh, Vine or music? Vine, exactly. People knew that there was something in the space of algorithmically recommended short video. And, you know, TikTok was just, you know, the one to win. Uh, so it's a little bit of a Google versus Yahoo story, let's say, or something like that. And so what you're basically saying is there's a software slowdown, if only because, I guess, the, the flip side, we've reached everybody or, or almost everybody. We've reached everybody. So while there are still new things to do with this existing connection of everyone, you know, there's no low hanging fruit, right? There's no thing that happens at the next doubling of the number of people connected on the internet because there's not going to ever be a next doubling. Right. Yeah. Right. Like this is also why a few years ago before uh, Zuckerberg pivoted uh, Facebook into, you know, the metaverse, which people made fun of at the time, but maybe is actually now in retrospect, seeming a much wiser choice, right? Now that they are basically Apple's sort of only competitor when Apple came out with their VR device before they went into the metaverse, they were considering becoming sort of the backbone of the internet in India. And then a variety of regulatory challenges prevented them from doing that. They were exploring schemes like maybe even buying people internet, right? Or paying for it at a loss and getting that nice um, lock-in effect. And then maybe pairing it up with a currency, a cryptocurrency like Libra, which also kind of failed to basically become India's super app. I think that was like a strong and reasonable play, but People are now in India and they are online and that sort of opportunity doesn't really happen. So I think the next software applications 
will no longer be this effect of having connected everyone to the internet and then everyone figuring out what are all the things I can do with other people online. I think that is sort of ended. I think we figured out most of the things we can do with this form factor and things like um, there'll be like quality improvements of various kinds and there'll be human to machine interfaces. I'm sure there's still information services there. But this sort of like instant virality of a large user base, like I think that's going to happen much more infrequently, not as rapidly as it did from about 2000 to 2010. Yeah, it's funny because it's also we don't have that much room to expand the amount of people uh, that are online. But also we don't have that much room to expand the amount of time that people spend online. Because I remember when I was a kid, I used to say, you know, be right back to my friends as if I was going off of. the. Yeah. And, and the default was I was disconnected, whereas now I'm just always connected. They're, they're, and so how much more time can you really get from me to be, you know, plugged into some, you know, uh, digital sort of device or experience? Not that much more. Yeah. And like texting has been significantly replaced by various messaging apps. And with the emergence of the smartwatch, you've kind of reached 24-7 saturation. And with the aura ring, you know, we're collecting your data in your sleep. I don't know. Maybe they're like dream sharing Let's put it this way. Maybe there are dream measuring innovations where people uh, share their dreams on social media. I like dread to think of the monetization schemes people would come up with. But that's sort of like almost the, that's the kind of technology, science fiction technology, which might become science fact one day that you have to look into increase people's time online at this point. It's no longer something easy like, well, let's make you know a smartwatch or let's give them a fun extra thing to do. It's displaced and absorbed television. It's displaced and absorbed texting. And uh, there's not that much else left to do. Yeah. You had one tweet that I want to read really quickly the other day where you said, I think Orwell's politics and the English language need a follow-up essay, technology and the English language. We've reached a point where industry terms in a variety of fields actively obscure what is or what is not happening materially. Can you unpack that? I think that um, industrial jargon should be technically precise rather than hijacked by marketing and financial distortions. There's a deep value in marketing. Basically, we adopt as a society much more quickly new technologies and ways of doing things. Now, the tricky situation emerges when you start talking about something like 3D printing. Would you be surprised to learn that 3D printing actually refers to seven common and distinct techniques of manufacturing, right? There's no actual single technology that you can call 3D printing. It is a a thesis in a way about production. And there are several technologies that each have a useful use case. Maybe it would be better if we talked about each of these seven technologies individually, because let's be real, if you're trying to invest, for example, in a 3D printing company, or deciding where a 3D printing component might fit your manufacturing process. Why don't you just use a name for each of these seven distinct techniques? Why have an umbrella term? And the answer is the umbrella term is there to produce this illusion of a massive market rather than what is for now kind of a niche application in sort of machine tooling of various kinds, right? Uh, you have like car repair shops will now occasionally print 3D print components, right? But you don't have any mass manufactured product that's fully 3D printed. That would be a science fiction promise, something that could happen in the future, 
when you can combine multiple materials, moving parts. And the thesis there, actually, which no one explicates really, is that instead of having many, many specialized machines where you move through them, software would make it more efficient to have a single machine complete all the steps of building a product and then give you that product, you know, like a Star Trek replicator almost. And that these machines, uh, these 3D printers would be very flexible and could just with a software update change to manufacture something totally different. That would be amazing. That would mean that factories could have much lower capitalization costs, et cetera, et cetera. But describing an economic niche rather than describing a technical niche then obscures how fast progress would be in the relevant 3D printing techniques. Uh, another example is I wish people talked more about uh, software um, information architectures, let's say an artificial intelligence, right? People talk about large language models, but you know, the large language models uh, run on a particular architecture that's only been sort of stumbled upon relatively recently, right? Talking about the transformer architecture, the image generation, the very best image generation. Um, I don't yet know about the video that OpenAI recently released the video generation. But before this, Midjourney was making better pictures than Dali, and it was based on diffusion models. Eric, do you happen to know, is the video generation that's happening, is that also based on diffusion models? I'm, I'm not deep enough to, to know. Okay, so I think m many of us don't, right? So again, instead of talking about the result, maybe we should talk about the technique. Can you imagine a world where we just talked about vehicles all the time? and never bother to clarify whether we're talking about an internal combustion vehicle, uh, a car with a, with a gas engine or an electric vehicle. Uh, if I started talking about progress in cars and started using numbers that put these two different technologies in the same bucket, I think it would be very easy to obscure either a lack of progress or to like not notice when real progress is happening. I could give a third example, right? In addition to AI, in addition to 3D printing, I think green technology is a useless umbrella term. There is nothing fundamental about wind power, solar power, geothermal power that would suggest that progress in any of these technologies is correlated. Solar is going pretty fast. Wind is kind of slow. Geothermal hasn't even gotten started, though I'm bullish on it, right? so-called renewables, so-called green energy is a political marketing term. It's an ask for subsidies, right? And it's an ask for, hey, wouldn't it be nice if X? And I really think there's a problem when the majority of conversations about a technology or even the majority of conversations in an industry, because it's the best way to either receive money from investors or from the government, start being in these obscurantist technical terms that intentionally conflate categories. If I had a very weird new technology, I might want to brand it as green tech or renewable tech because I'm counting on investors and the government and others not needing to really understand what my technology is about. It, it, it is helpful, but isn't it a warning sign that we have huge sectors of the economy making massive bets on things most participants in the economy don't know about. Now, of course, like, you know, when venture capitalists specialize, 
in something. And when founders and technologists specialize in these things, they start to learn and they intuitively grasp what's a sort of vague jargon term and what's a technically precise conversation about technical, you know, about what is possible. So, you know, uh, I think that, however, having clear language reduces barriers to entry and reduces capital misallocation and reduces basically the cost of having inaccurate narratives about the future of technology affect decision-making of everyone. So at what point will, will we think that we are no longer in a tech tech nation? What, what, what needs to happen or what, what needs to become true? And then we can talk about maybe what are the bottlenecks or the causes. There's several measures. My favorite measure is energy consumption. If energy consumption goes way up, it means we have way more things to do. If energy consumption is not way up, well, you know, efficiency is real. If you keep your lights on all night, this won't cost you anything. The era of your parents' incandescent light bulb is over. The LED is there. It's a colder light, literally and metaphorically. It doesn't waste uh, energy by producing heat you don't really need, like a traditional light bulb. So I don't want to completely deny efficiency, but let's put it this way. If you have um, a machine that's 20% efficient and you push it to 80% efficiency, that's a 4x gain. And you've basically exhausted it. You're never else going to get like a 4x gain in efficiency. There's like a ceiling to it, right? As technology becomes efficient, you eventually spend as little energy as physics allows for a particular action. And after that point, there's quantity. If I spend 20 units of energy doing 20 things, and then I spend 80 units of energy doing 80 things, well, it could easily 4x once more. So it can go from 80 to 160, 320, 640, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, efficiency is always sort of pushing against the ceiling, and you can tell where the ceiling is going to be. Meanwhile, like the sort of quantity keeps going. And because of that, I think that given our emphasis on efficiency in the last 20 years, uh, we've probably picked all the low-hanging fruit already. And really, energy will once more be a pretty good measure of how many things we do. So I would say that if after the next 20 years or 30 years, we spent two times or four times or 10 times as much energy as a planet, uh, then I would say that the great stagnation is over and that we are once more in an era of rapid industrial progress an ongoing rather than frozen industrial and technological revolution. And it totally might happen, right? Like, again, if the full promise of AGI, where I mean, not the general party savvy conversationalist, you know, ChatGPT maybe has automated cocktail parties, but the generally applicable intelligence that can solve scientific problems, material problems, et cetera, et cetera. If that promise comes to be, I could see, you know, servers actually spending 10 times as much energy as they, as the whole planet does today and it making economic sense. And I think that would be a fulfillment of that promise, but also say if, you know, we spend twice as much energy on supersonic flight as we do today. It's really hard to tell a story of ubiquitous progress that isn't a high energy story, right? It's very hard to describe that.
Steelman, the, for people who are dubious that that is the right way of determining whether we're, we were out of the stagnation or not, or the, determining sort of the impact of, of energy usage, what's the critique to what you just said, the, the Steelman of it? I think the efficiency critique, uh, which I try to account for a little bit, but I, you can push it further. And there's also an argument that there's a bunch of stuff we're doing with energy that's just unnecessary, right? Why do 10 things for 10 units of energy if one thing gets you the utility of it? Um, and you might say that, uh, for example, a roller coaster ride might be more energy intense than spending an hour on your smartphone. But maybe you could actually have more fun on your smartphone than on a roller coaster ride, let's say, right? Or uh, perhaps supersonic flight is a great advance and it's good to go to New York. But you know what? Maybe VR is just good enough that actually you don't need to go to New York. You just put on your VR set and you are talking to someone in New York right now and you're there virtually even faster than you would be with a plane. So there is an argument to be made that um, there are all sorts of things that we don't need to be doing that can be substituted for stuff that doesn't need energy and that therefore energy is just another resource, right? If we're tracking the number of horses we're using, you might say, well, we're in a great stagnation because we're using about as many horses as last year. And actually we're using many fewer, there are far fewer horses in use now than a hundred years ago. So if energy is less this like physics measure of how much stuff we're doing and more just a resource like horses, then it's not a good measure. That's really interesting. Where would you feel differently or think differently or disagree with Peter Thiel or Tyler Cowen's sort of understanding of, of, of this or, or their, their take on this? I think Tyler's perspective has been that in terms of raw economic growth, the great stagnation is sort of already over. He said something to this effect a little while ago, and he's especially bullish about AI. Note, Tyler uses economic growth as measured by GDP and other normal econometrics measures to measure progress. I would disagree with him on that being the best measure. And the reasoning for this is that I think we have such deep incentives to distort both GDP figures and to distort how we are accounting for the growth of the economy, that the financial measures are not really tied to reality that well. Again, you know, I, you print $2 trillion, well, the US economy is bigger by $2 trillion. Uh, that doesn't mean people are much wealthier, right? And this kind of perspective that accounting for inflation, the world isn't growing very much. I, I think this is in a way now that we can be bullish about AI, I think it's become okay to say almost that economic growth isn't doing that well and that it doesn't mean that much. So I think that a key disagreement me and Tyler would have, and we would diagnose different things as stagnation different things as cessation of stagnation would be on these sort of metrics that economists use that basically like are financialized. I sort of almost believe more in the raw quantity of steel production. Where does the steel come from? Where do the iPhones come from? That feels easier than sort of trying to do these purchasing power adjusted uh, comparisons of things like GDP, right?
let, let's say more about the the bottlenecks or the, or the causes as to the stagnation. Some people you alluded to earlier, you know, Robert Gordon's thesis is the low hanging fruit has been picked. Some people make the you know really emphasize the regulatory bottlenecks or just a sort of aspect to it, and some people emphasize culture or, or other methods. How do you parse between the uh, between the mechanics? I think on a very fundamental level, our society's ability to absorb new innovation has gone down. This is why I qualified my critique of, say, marketing terms, because I do think that the, that in itself is a valid social technology to get people without a deep interest in technology learning how to apply something new, learning how to think about it both as an individual consumer or as a bureaucratic decision maker. But sort of the gains of what we can do through basically producing highly effective, highly targeted ads, propaganda, wordsmithing, ways to encourage people to use technology. I think we're sort of saturated on that. And that was a force that was in operation both in 1924 as it is in 2024. However, at the same time, uh, things like basically government regulation in its pure form, in its almost rent-seeking form, are much worse now than they were in 1924. So we are also individually much more risk-averse with regard to bodily harm. If we lived in a society today of pedestrians who use smartphones and so on, and someone introduced the car, how many viral photos of like people suffering horribly in a car accident would it take to have the novel technology of personal vehicles banned? You know, high capacity personal vehicles. Of course, we can put a, a reasonable speed limit, like, I don't know, twice the speed of walking, let's say. Uh, those vehicles can stay. Like the discourse would just be really against it, I think. I think we would not accept the kind of fatalities that the early universal adoption of cars introduced. So we, there's a positive here. Perhaps we value human life more. And there's a negative here. We are timid and perhaps are taking trade-offs we wouldn't endorse. So uh, aversion to personal danger and bureaucratic overreach, I think, are two strong forces that are slowing us down. Uh, and you can see this in discourse on topics like the nuclear industry, or 20 years ago, no one's going to convince me that the fear of genetic engineering in the use of, you know, in food, that did not slow down progress in that field. Right. And how about the bottlenecks related to just the, the, the cause that you mentioned earlier around energy usage? If, if we were able to, uh, to 4X or 5X the, the amount of energy that we use, what is the reason that would enable us to do that? Or what, what's slowing us down at the moment? I mean, part of it is that there's been sort of a collapse in demand for certain kinds of energy, right? Like there are very few places that are doing more with it. I think in terms of physics, there is, as we discussed on previous episodes, little to stop us from scaling nuclear power, actually, for a much more rich energy society. But there are deep political problems with it, including the balance, the balance of power internationally and specifically the balance between the superpowers or the great powers and smaller countries. With regard to the green perspective, I think we have gone from a sort of desire to make our civilization sustainable and harmonious with nature into a perspective where any intervention at all is bad, 
and there's no way to satisfy that drive. Environmentalism with a misanthropic bent has become much too common a perspective. It's an understandable one in many ways. But honestly, like in the 1970s and 80s, I think that there were many more things, many diverse issues that needed to be solved. And a lot of them have been solved since, right? The, the hole in the ozone layer is something we don't hear about much because the ozone layer has actually replenished since we stopped using one specific uh, molecule, right? That was causing trouble when released into the atmosphere. So I really think that we actually, in a way, have big environmental problems, but they're far fewer of them than they were a while ago. So the case for misanthropic environmentalism is, in my opinion, weaker than it's ever been before. However, for some reason, it has more of a grasp on people, and it's more popular than before. I think that today, especially if you ask young people, they feel much more pessimistic about the future of the planet, but they can probably say fewer specific problems with the planet and the environment today than they could have in the 1970s or 80s, right? Acid rain is also not a problem in most places, right? The ozone layer, as I mentioned earlier, et cetera, et cetera. Food quality and safety. Uh, in the 70s, you still had stories in uh, the United States and Europe that were Chinese tier lead in baby formula, right? Problematic, including again, leaded gasoline. I think that was banned in the 70s, if I remember correctly, or phased out. So actually we've cleaned up our act significantly, but we feel far more doomed environmentally than ever before. And I don't think it's justified. You've written two Bismarck briefs in the last few months around two of the most important institutions in Silicon Valley, Andreessen Horowitz and, and Y Combinator. Mm -hmm. Maybe let's start with the Y Combinator role, Y Combinator piece, where you talk about their role in the, in the software slowdown. Well, uh, first off, I, I want to be clear here. I think Y Combinator is amazing at incubating software companies. And it's actually a form of flattery to say that, you know, the main problem for an organization is a macroeconomic problem because the organization itself is, it means it's so big that it sort of captures at least a share of the gains of an entire industry. And on the other hand, it's not saying that they are causing it. If anything, I think YC is trying to diversify and has diversified successfully outside of software, but these bets are still relatively young. And conceptually, it's difficult to come up with something that is as good as an internet company. Because if you think about it, sort of the margins of rolling out a software product to someone new, so low, right? The margins of rolling out a Tesla to someone new, the profit margins are high, the costs per user are low. So with the Tesla, the margins are, are lower and the cost per user is higher. You have to physically deliver a big three-ton chunk of metal to them. You have to manufacture it. They have to pay for it. They actually will think about that much more than clicking install uh, on a new app on their phone. And of course, once you know the Teslas are delivered, maybe you can treat the Teslas as a platform and you can roll out things like just you, you pack them with cameras and then you roll out a software update that makes them fully self-driving or improves their self-driving or gives them other capacities that they previously didn't have. I, I think that's still viable, right? But I think almost all of these bets, be it energy bets, manufacturing bets, none of them have 
the sort of perfect storm of business that software did, where you have these beautiful, beautiful high margins and lots of money can be made very quickly. And um, I think Y Combinator has a significant amount of knowledge transfer that it can impart on other industries and might actually kickstart some progress there because they have a much more in-depth mentoring process than many other organizations, right? Their network of alumni is also extremely strong. I would say that in the United States, if you have to pick being members of the Harvard alumni network or the YC alumni network, I think you'll make more money if you're part of the YC alumni network like on average, quite a bit. Maybe you'll be less politically powerful, but I'm sure Gary Tan is working on that with his activism in local SF politics, which I hope I hope he succeeds. But still, this creation of a unique alumni network where lots of founders and technically-minded people can talk to each other, the deep mentoring from already successful entrepreneurs, and of course, also like, by this point, software legends, like Paul Graham and Sam Altman, of now of OpenAI, and also now of the, what is it, the 7 trillion future manufacturing giant, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, that's irreplaceable. Um, so really, this, is, this has been a foundational organization in creating the boom of the internet company. I'm just saying that because of macroeconomic reasons, uh, the internet company is coming to an end, and there might be other companies but their margins are going to be lower than the software companies of the last 15 and 20 years. And this means that while I'm sure Y Combinator will continue to deliver good financial returns, there might have to be additional considerations brought into it that previously weren't as relevant. Like, for example, I don't think you had to do that much fighting of regulators to do some of the new software stuff. And because it grows so fast, you could outrun uh, regulators. That's the whole sort of blitzscaling kind of logic, right? You get so big that it's kind of doesn't make sense to ban you, right? That was kind of what Uber was about as well, uh, where it grew very quickly and got lots of users. Local politicians were never interested in banning them in favor of the taxi union. Places where it was a bit slower, where the taxi union was a bit stronger, well, those places still don't have Uber rides, right? So... I think that perhaps there's a missing tradition of knowledge that could be added, which would be what wouldn't it be interesting if a large fund or a startup incubator like YC targeted one industry and its regulatory body and sunk, I don't know, let's say a billion dollars. Yes, a billion dollars or two or three or four or five into deregulating that whole sector even though it's a non-existent sector right now, I guarantee you the, the force of we are writing off 5 billion to legalize this incumbent sector. And then we're investing in 10 physical technology companies in that sector that we have just legalized. I think that would be a crazy and amazing thing to do. And I think you would have like a 30 to 50% chance of working, but uh, that's such a different ethos, right? From the kind of like relatively almost pacifist pro-technology accelerationism take we have where we're just sort of like, leave us alone. And I'm like, no, 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 everything's already locked down. You kind of have to push in DC in specific targeted domains and you have to push on them before you even know that the businesses will work out. I think the sort of 
be small and unnoticed and then be so big you can't be banned. I think that just doesn't work in physical tech. Which domains would you prioritize? Well, I honestly think that there is a lot that can be done with regard to material science and various material regulations. There is a lot that could be done with any sorts of travel restrictions. For example, we talked about Boom and there's some other supersonic flight companies. Until recently, there was a, a ban for overland supersonic travel, right? I think that a lot of the business of a supersonic company is overturning that, right? So there are also certain kinds of environmental restrictions where there were limits placed on, you know, how much energy can a dishwasher use? How much energy can a, a car use? I would go through and present clean-ish or clean alternatives to almost every sort of energy efficiency regulation and just push a little bit in the other direction, pairing it with sort of a new kind of product being introduced or a certain new kind of technology being introduced, right? I finally also think that there's something in the general space of basically like aerospace, aerospace regulation, but there's a lot being done there already. So maybe that's too late. I guess, Eric, if I knew all the domains, maybe I wouldn't be talking about them on the show, but I'd be raising the capital for this regulatory venture. It, it is fascinating how in the 2010s, if you were in tech or in 2000s, or basically up until recently, you could ignore politics, you can ignore re re regulation. You know, Andreessen Horowitz for, for many years said they don't take any political positions. But as of recently, in the last few months, they changed their, their charter and say, hey, we, we will take political positions or donate to candidates or, or get involved in, in lobbying when we feel it's relevant to our companies. And that's just a testament to how it's increasingly relevant to their companies to be engaged in the, in the process. Yeah. So A16Z and YC, I think, will converge on basically a variant of this playbook. Maybe they won't be that ambitious. But look, if we're talking about raising $7 trillion for disrupting chip fabrication and disrupting the GPU market, I think very serious political efforts have not yet been undertaken. And I do think it's kind of disappointing that one has to undertake a political effort to unleash production. But then if we look closely at human history, I don't think you ever could produce things without undertaking a political battle. It's just that there were times and places where the political battle was won. The last Chinese empress, when given a demonstration of a railroad built in China, basically just banned the construction of railroads in China on the theory that China doesn't need them and that, in fact, it would be disruptive for social order. In Britain, no such ban occurred in the 19th century, though there were members of parliament who were quite opposed to it and quite opposed to rail travel. When we think of these golden laissez-faire periods, I think we should actually think of them as the aftermath of a political battle won. Not that there was ever a period where politics was absent. So I think what happened in the United States in the 1990s was a political fight related to personal computing was one. And the government was convinced that it was a good idea, right? The information superhighway started as a, as a literal 
political slogan, like a politician slogan. I don't even remember which politician was. I think it was in the Clinton administration. Uh, I don't think it was Clinton himself, though he made use of it. And then as an afterglow of this universal distribution, first of physical computers and then smartphones, we had this uh, happy period. But there were fights. There were fights. I want to be mindful of uh, time. Is there anything else either on A16Z or, uh, or YC or Silicon Valley culture or the tech stagnation that we, uh, we should leave our audience with? I think that uh, software needs to be applied much more to the process of manufacturing. And that is a fundamentally different set of businesses and different set of economics than consumer facing products. Um, I think that it's been the case so far that we have uh, enabled devices and given them functionalities they sometimes don't need. But really, we should be gathering much more information on the factory floor of practically anything, and then seeing what computers can do with that. I think companies actually have very little capability to reduce the complexity of their own operations. Almost everything worth buying from a car to your smartphone is very complex and is built by a thousand machines, each even more complex. The industrial world remains unoptimized. The software gains of getting everyone to use spreadsheets and email have ended. The software gains of literally putting a camera in a factory or 5,000 cameras in a factory and trying to do basically big data analysis on how that factory works, which is secretly the most complex machine, right? Factories are today can be thought of as the world's most complicated production machines. I think those gains, we've barely scratched the surface. That's a great note to, to end on. Semo, thanks for, for coming on as always. We'll link to the Bismarck briefs in the, in the bio of this episode. And uh, as always, until next time. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for listening to Live Players. Please subscribe, leave a review, and check out Samo's excellent newsletter, The Bismarck Brief, for more rigorous analysis of key individuals, institutions, or industries. Live Players is a production of Turpentine, the podcast network behind Econ 102 with Noah Smith and Moment of Zen. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.